So when I was in college, I was an English major, and there I learned that there is more about artistic writing than just good storytelling. There are very intentional mechanics that an author uses to share a story that people actually want to hear. Yes, Daddy, I am using that very expensive Hope College degree today. <laughs> As English majors, we were tasked with identifying the components of a good story and communicating why the story is a good story. When we do this work, we're using a lens, think a magnifying glass, to peek behind the story and into the deeper meanings revealed to us through these mechanics. And so, as we dive into these first few verses, I would like us to put on a narrative lens because I think Matthew is using some intentional mechanics to help us see something greater in this gospel story. Forgive me as I continue to use many literary technical terms to unpack this morning. So first, when we think about a generic story, there's usually someone writing the story and there's usually someone telling the story. The person who is writing the story is called a... Author. Shout it out. Author. Author. And the, per the person who is telling the story is called the narrator. narrator. Excellent. So in, this, in these first couple of verses in Matthew, we're not exactly sure who the narrator is. It's possible that the narrator is Matthew, and he's telling a firsthand perspective. Although there's some things that indicate that it might be unlikely that it's Matthew. You'll see why in a little bit. It's also possible that the narrator in this story is someone else someone who had been more privy to interacting with the royal family of Herod. Second, we see that Matthew, as the author, is establishing what's called a framed narrative. So a framed narrative is when the author uses another narrative different than the main story to give perspective on the main story. In this case, Matthew introduces a framed narrative through Herod's flashback. He hears the story of Jesus performing miracles in the wilderness in current time, and Herod flashes back to his birthday party, which is presumably sometime earlier. Then Matthew, again as the author, shifts his narrative tone. Now, a narrative tone is the intentional words, the sentence structures, and the attitude or narrator or main character. So um, the tone is used to deepen our connection to characters. It's a very intentional mechanism that a writer would use to have you feel like you're in love with Harry Potter, for example, um, to make you excited about Cho Chang and Harry's desire for her in book five. Spoilers. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sure you were fine. The, the Versteeg boys aren't in here, so we're okay. Um, so, one of the things that we notice about the tone in these couple of verses is that our narrator is very intentionally sharing private conversations between Herodias and her daughter-in-law. This was a private conversation, and our narrator knows about it. Our narrator also knows the deep inner fears and thoughts of Herod, which is really interesting, because it could suggest that... Herod is a very complex character. It also could suggest that whoever is telling this story was privy to those conversations, which is very unlikely that it was Matthew. Mm -hmm. So, 
we read things like Herod was sorry about the order to behead John because of his surrounding guests. He had to fulfill the order. Those kind of details show us that this narrator was deeply involved in these relationships. The tone of the narrator is deeply important for us here today. And then finally, this is just a footnote, but this is a story about John's death. And this story is so anti-John, as in John isn't in it at all. He is literally in a different scene, beheaded, imprisoned, and killed somewhere else. He is so not center stage, he's hardly even a supporting character. It's like when the mother in um, Romeo and Juliet is killed. That was my part when I was in um, high school. Just <laughs> silently killed in Act 1. Um, so that's literally what happens. Um, so it feels strange, right? I mean, John the Baptist is a key character. He has a name, which many other characters throughout Matthew have not had names. There are many questions that are raised for me as a result of these narrative elements. Things like, Matthew, why did you tell the story of Herod and John the Baptist this way? I want to know what John did when those guards came. Did he fight them? Was he mask of Zorro left and right? Why did John let the guards approach him? How did he die? And what's going on with Herod and Herodias? There is some scandal in the house. This is a telenovela if I've ever seen one. So these are questions. They're fun to think about. But I think the real question that we need to ask ourselves today is why does Matthew intentionally write the stories this way? I believe Matthew is helping the reader see the emergence of the real hero in this gospel story. Because at the time, the people believed the hero was John the Baptist. We read in the text that Herod was so afraid of killing John the Baptist for fear of a revolt that he simply imprisons him and avoids killing him at his mistress' request. The people love John. And yet, all of the narrative elements the narrator uses draws our attention away from John toward a much more complicated set of characters. What for? Matthew is explicitly stating that John the Baptist is not the Savior. He truly is the one who would come before the Messiah. Matthew is helping the reader think us to fully understand this because so many people were confused by John's death. Herod himself, who is the king of the Jews, in current time, believes that Jesus' miraculous work is actually the work of a resurrected John. And yet, the disciples carry the body of John, they bury it respectfully, say their goodbyes, and they go to Jesus. If you are looking for the poet in Matthew, here it is. The disciples of John, in their grief, know to go to Jesus. So, friends, why start a sermon this way? Why would we start this way today? Because I need to confess to you that sometimes I treat Jesus like he's a supporting character in my narrative. Sometimes it's hard for me to believe that the Jesus of the Bible is actually the Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ of the world today. And as a result, I teach, or I treat teachers and writers 
bloggers and friends like they are the savior to my story because they teach me things that I've never heard before or they show me how to posture myself in the world in a way that I've never tried before. The Enneagram can teach me more about myself, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you been here before? Friends, here is something we cannot miss. Matthew is so certain about Jesus, he, prompted by the Holy Spirit, crafts his narrative to elevate the person of Jesus so that we absolutely cannot miss that he is the Messiah sent to alter the DNA of the world, of creation. And there is no other hero, not John the Baptist, that will suffice. Sometimes in our culture, it's hard to believe or hard to imagine what it was like to anticipate the coming of a Messiah. I believe this makes it hard for us to comprehend the necessity for Christ in the world today. I also believe this makes it hard for us to comprehend the necessity for Christ in our lives today. Because we're good people. We do good things. We participate in society. We attend galas and help the homeless and volunteer. And yet, when we look at the world around us, like homeless people suffering homelessness during zero degree temperatures, you must ask yourself, things are not the way they are supposed to be. And so we're left to wonder, what is it that Matthew is truly trying to show us about Jesus? So there's two things that I think Jesus, or Matthew is showing us about Jesus. The first is this. After Jesus hears about the death of John, his cousin, he withdrew privately by boat to a solitary place. The ESV says a desolate place. When Jesus is pulling up to shore, the crowds are already waiting for him. These people came from the towns to meet Jesus by the shore. And what we learn is that when we come to Jesus, Jesus gives us what we need. Jesus, filled with, I can only assume, his grief, when he is met by the crowds, is overwhelmed by compassion. When he sees the crowd, he heals the sick. And when the disciples ask Jesus to send the people away, to fend for themselves, to find things to eat, Jesus tells them to let them stay. And he takes two fish, and he takes five loaves, and he multiplies them for thousands of people. Because it's men and women and children. And what does the text say? The text says that there is food left over. When we come to Jesus, friends, Jesus gives us what we need. Let us not miss that the crowd meets Jesus in a desert place, a desolate place. This word in the Greek is the same as the word wilderness, ermon. But the tense of the word is different. Oh, Ben, can you put up that word real fast? I think it's, yeah, there it is. So it's ermon. That's the phonetic way of spelling it. Kuiper students, you can correct me on that later. Um, so but the tense of the word is different. The people don't just meet Jesus in the wilderness, some broad open space. Instead, they meet Jesus in a desert, in a solitary place, in a desolate place. This place is where no people should be. It is barren. It is dismal emptiness. 
as the Webster Dictionary describes desolate. And Jesus' intention was to go here alone. This was his destination. This was his end place. And when he gets there, there's a crowd of people waiting for him in the desolate place. Can you see the foreshadowing here, my friends? It is just for a moment, but here we see the collision of our humanity with Jesus' heavenly authority and love for God's people. Friends, are you wondering how to find Jesus? Because if you are, look no further. Jesus meets us right here in our humanity. He doesn't meet us in some broad, expansive place. He meets us in this particular place. It is a desolate place. It is a solitary place. It is the place, the desolate place of humanity that is marked by our sin, and Jesus meets us here. He gives us what he needs. He heals us. He feeds us. He offers us abundantly more eternal life that is marked by love and grace. Can I get an amen? Amen. In the tradition of the Reformed Church, we have a book of questions and answers designed to help Christian believers articulate their faith. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. Each question is numbered, and each section is, per, is a particular topic. The first question in the book is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And if you are a good CRC person, you know this by heart, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Friends, it is Jesus who wears the cloak of divinity, lays it over our shoulders, heals us, and nourishes us with grace. It is Jesus who meets us in the desolate place of humanity and does not leave us there to fend for ourselves, but instead heals us, restores us, renews us, reconciles us. He takes us with him. So um, I was a camp counselor at Camp Geneva, and um, if you don't know where Camp Geneva is, it's out on the lakeshore of Holland, Michigan. I was with middle school girls, love them to pieces. They also stink, despite everyone's thoughts. Um, and I, about halfway through the summer, I was asked by some of the administration if I would be willing um, to take a student who had special needs. And so I had some friends in college who were special education teachers, and I thought, I got this. They're whips. I'm going to be way stronger than them. Um, and so, my student, her name was Emily, um, she was brought to me, and I also forgot that I was going to have nine other girls, um, so I had a, a cabin of ten girls plus me, and um, Emily had a lot, of, a lot of special needs. One in particular was bipolar disorder, um, and I underestimated her posture and how she would affect the cabin. My girls were super gracious. And God had blessed the women that brought me into the cabin that week. They were loving and caring, and they included Emily. Um, but it was, un, it, was, it was unknown if Emily would be um, kind of compliant to what we were supposed to do that day, or if she would battle every step of the way that we moved. Um, and so on halfway through the week, we're doing good. We had just moved from lunch and then to quiet time. And then from quiet time, we were supposed to go to the all-camp game. And um, I, you know, I said, girls, time to get out of your bunks. They all grabbed their stocks, stuffed them in their shorts, and they ran out of the cabin. And Emily stayed on her bunk. <laughs> and 
I was like, Em, come on, we're gonna go play capture the flag, it's such a fun game. And she was like, mm, no. And she rolled over in her bunk. And I was like, okay, Emily, we are going to play capture the flag or you're not going to eat dinner. And um, <clears throat> I forgot to tell you, Emily is stronger than me and could pick me up. Um, and she, she just goes, no. And I was like, okay. Um, you don't get candy time during, you don't get candy during free time. That really pissed her off. She stood up, picked me up, moved me out of the doorway, and ran out of the cabin, away from the rest of the kids, into the woods. I am not a fast runner. I'm Dutch, okay? And Emily was very fast. She is midway beelining to the forest, and I am not even halfway putting my shoes on. Um, so I run to the other counselors and I'm like, hey, I just lost my, uh, my girl Emily. And they're like, you lost the special ed girl? Come on! <laughs> so I have three counselors with me and they're all running after Emily. No one can find Emily. She's lost in the woods. I start going into different cabins, pounding on all the doors. Emily, are you there? Good answer. I don't know why this keeps doing that, but it's okay. Um, she... Finally, I get to the point where I'm like, okay, she has got to be in our cabin again. So I go back into the cabin. I find her on her bunk, eating a Hershey bar. <laughs> and I say, Emily, how are you? She rolls over and she is sobbing. And I said, Emily, what's wrong? She said, does Jesus still love me? And I, I got down, kind of crouched next to her bunk, and I said, Emily, why do you think Jesus wouldn't still love you? She said, because I got angry and I ran away. And I said, Emily, Jesus always still loves you, no matter how far you run from him. I started bawling, <laughs> and she kind of looked at me and said, uh, is it time for snack time? Emily taught me something about God's grace and Jesus' love and how far we can run and how far we can return and he will always, always come back for us. Even if you're eating a Hershey bar after mom told you no. Friends, this work, this encounter with Jesus is not something that's far off. It's happening right here, right now, today. As you're sitting in these chairs, as I stand here, the fabric of our lives is shifting. Can you feel it? And if you can, how are you inviting others to come to Jesus with you? The second thing we should notice is the way Peter doubts when Jesus commands him to walk on the water. But just before we get, that, we get there, I want point out one quick tangent. Jesus immediately makes the disciples get into the boat after he's dismissed the crowd. Everyone has fed, and the text says that Jesus immediately makes the disciples go. This is a totally human Jesus, in case you wondered. His cousin has just died. He hosted a ton of people, gave them their ham buns, and sent them on their way. If you've been to a Dutch funeral, you Can we let Jesus grieve now? He gets his chance. The text says he's alone and he prays in the evening.
thing. And after he does, he catches up with the boat in an unconventional way. He walks on the water. Now, I just want to like parse some of this out a little bit. We don't know what Jesus said to the disciples when he made them immediately go onto the boat. We just know that they went. We don't know if Peter was like, hey, Jesus, how are we going to catch up with you? We don't know if he's texting him during his quiet time like, hey, we're pretty far off. If you're trying to swim to us, you better come now, Jesus. We don't know. But what we do know is that these fellas have seen quite a bit. Am I right? I mean, they've seen Jesus just multiply five loaves and two fish. They've seen him resurrect a little girl. They've seen him heal a woman who's hemorrhaging. They've seen him heal people left and right. They've seen him cast demons out. And they're still afraid when he comes on the water towards him that it's a ghost. I'm sorry. How many ghosts have been in the book of Matthew? None. How many miracles has Jesus performed? A lot. And again, they think it's a ghost. But possibly my favorite moment in this story is when Jesus tells Peter to command him to get out of the boat. Let's read it again. It's Matthew 28, or 14, 28 through 33. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So, Jesus, or so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Friends, this story, I don't believe, is a lesson of pushing your doubts away. If you have heard that before, I'd like to challenge that thought. Your doubts and wonderings about the Christian faith are welcome here. I believe this is a lesson about calling on the Lord. Peter tells Jesus to tell him to get out of the boat, as if to suggest, if you tell Jesus, if you ask for it, Jesus is going to do it. How many of us have prayed for something and peeked with one eye open to see if it magically appeared? I don't know. I'm sorry. You know that puppy you wanted in third grade? I know we all did this. I prayed for it. I did not get it. Staring off. I'm kidding. <laughs> Clearly you weren't listening for the Holy Spirit to know. I'm just kidding. She had a 120-pound cow. <laughs> I did have a dog. Away. Am I right? 
How will you fix your eyes on what's really happening before you? How are you learning to draw your eyes to Jesus without distraction? What must you do? How must you position yourself to avoid the wind when it comes? If you have questions about how to do this, or if you're wondering how others do it, let's talk about it over lunch today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.